Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. สวัสดีครับ. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be doing guided loving-kindness meditation. This is our day to actually practice either breathing mindfulness meditation, loving-kindness meditation, and sometimes we do Buddhist chanting as well. This is part of our group learning program where we meet on Sunday and Wednesday in order to share the teachings of the Buddha, helping you to learn and develop your practice. And Wednesday is all about coming together as a group and actually practicing something like meditation. And today is loving kindness meditation, which goes really well with the topic of our discussion on Sunday. Sunday, we were in chapter 15 of the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. And we discussed true love, love without attachment. How in order to practice true love, we need to eliminate our craving, desire, attachments and have a genuine interest for other beings to be well and be peaceful. Essentially supporting, encouraging and motivating people to be successful in life rather than try to control them with our own desires or the things that we want, our own expectations and obligations, which oftentimes creates a real struggle in relationships. One of the ways that you can work on practicing true love in all of your relationships, whether it's with a life partner, with children, with your parents, siblings, friends, coworkers, whomever you may be in contact with at any time, is to develop loving kindness in the mind using loving kindness meditation. The Buddha shares with us that this is the second most important aspect of our practice in terms of developing the mind and improving the quality of the mind because practicing loving kindness meditation and then practicing loving kindness in daily life moves in this active goodwill for all beings to be well and be peaceful without judgment and it moves out any kind of anger hatred or ill will that's in the mind and this is really beneficial to transform that poison of anger hatred or ill will and just remove it and get it out of the mind because that unwholesome mental state of anger, hatred, and ill will is going to just cause complications in your relationships. And it's loving kindness meditation that you can use in order to develop the mind and bring this loving kindness into the mind in meditation. And then in daily life, practice this in all your relationships by being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful as you interact with people on a day-to-day basis. So if you've been part of this group learning program, you already know how I do loving kindness meditation. But if you're joining us for the first time doing loving kindness meditation, let me just share a brief little bit about how we actually do this. 
What I'm going to do is just in a moment kind of invite you guys to take a meditation position and then we're going to start with just some very basic guidance guiding you into breathing mindfulness meditation. I'll do a little chant just to kind of ease the mind in the meditation and those of you guys that are familiar with these chants you're welcome to join along and then I'll give you some more guidance on breathing mindfulness meditation right after the chants. We'll do that for some period of time, maybe five, 10 minutes or so, just to kind of clear out the mind, kind of center it on the breath, focus on letting go of any craving, desire, attachment, bringing the mind into the present moment, focus on the breath. Then after that, we will move into loving kindness meditation, where I will say certain affirmations. And those affirmations are said out loud by me just to remind you to say these in the mind. So on your out breath, you will start with, may I be peaceful. And when you say I there, it's mean this being, who, whoever this being is, you. Because you need to start with yourself having loving kindness before you can have loving kindness for others. There's that first affirmation that you repeat in the mind on the out breath whenever you get to that point. Then there's going to be another affirmation. May I be safe. And you do that on the out breath. And then it's going to be, may I be well on the out breath. And then may I be free of all discontentedness in the suffering that it causes. Essentially, may you attain enlightenment because someone who's eliminated all discontentedness will be one who's attained enlightenment. So we'll go through that first ring being yourself. Then we'll move to another ring, probably may we, meaning those of us who have gathered for meditation. And we'll go through those same four affirmations. May we be peaceful. May we be safe. May we be well. May we be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. Then we'll make additional rings beyond that until we get to all beings, where we've encompassed all beings in our meditation. After that, we will then move into some more breathing mindfulness meditation on the backside of loving kindness, just to kind of clear the mind out, quiet it, center it, bring it to concentration and tranquility. And then we'll ultimately end the meditation with a chant and open up for any questions that you guys might have. Now, this meditation that I'm guiding you in, it's rings that I'm just creating that are kind of generally applicable to all practitioners who are joining for the meditation. It's not a prayer. It's not you sending loving kindness to somebody else and hoping that they will change. It's you transforming your own mind and cultivating this loving kindness in your mind so that then when you're around others, you will be able to practice loving kindness. So even though I'm using these generalized phrases that apply to all of us, when you're doing this on your own, you should create rings based on the challenges and the relationships that you have in your life. So you might start with you, it might go to your family, it might go to your friends, your coworkers, it might be people that you're angry at or have resentment for or jealousy towards, and then eventually maybe all beings. Or there might be just one person that you're really having challenges with and it's your mind that needs to transform. You can't change the other person. All you can do is change your mind. So maybe you do a meditation where it starts with you. You go to that person, repeating them over and over in multiple phrases, and then you go to all beings. 
Or maybe you don't even have loving kindness for yourself at this point. And maybe you need to start for a couple of weeks just doing you and doing that three, four, five, six times, those multiple rings just being you, and then go to all beings. So your loving kindness meditation, these rings that you create are going to shift and change based on what's going on in your life. You will have certain people that you need to cultivate loving kindness for. It might take you a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And as you gradually train the mind to let go of any anger, hatred, and ill will towards this individual, then maybe there's other people you need to move into this meditation in order to train the mind to let go and not hold on to any resentment, but instead to be able to practice loving kindness meditation. So while you hear me saying this out loud, normally you wouldn't say it out loud, you just do it inside the mind. And while I'm using these generalized phrases, normally you're gonna customize this for your specific needs. So I'm going to invite you guys to pull up a cushion for meditation or however you would like to position for meditation. All right, so let's go ahead and get started with meditation by just pulling up a meditation cushion or a chair, however you're going to meditate. Typically, we do loving kindness meditation either in the seated, lying, or standing positions. There's also walking, but we tend to only do breathing mindfulness meditation in that position. Once your lower body is comfortable, but not luxurious, nice and stable, bring your hands and arms into your lap with either your right hand on your left with your thumbs together, or put your palms on your thighs or your knees, wherever you need to put those. And then just close the eyes, keeping the, the upper body nice and erect. Just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Nice, steady, consistent breath. Breathing in and out. Your breath isn't going to necessarily match up with the guidance that I'm giving. This is just a reminder, just to help you remember to breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. Just establish a nice natural breath where you're gradually experiencing the full breath on the way in through the nose and on the way out, experiencing the full breath. I'm going to do some chanting just to ease us into meditation a bit and then come back with some more guidance. Arahang <laughs> 
meditation, focusing the mind on the breath, the present moment, breathing in and out. As the mind wanders off the breath, wherever you notice that, cut it off and let it go. If the mind goes to the past or the future, if there's any thoughts, ideas, or perceptions, just cut those off, let them go, and bring the mind back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. 
going to let you focus on the breath and do this work to train the mind to stay focused only on the breath rather than holding on to this voice or anything else wherever you notice that the mind is off the breath just cut that off and let it go you have nowhere to go there's nothing to do no one needs you right now just focus on the breath
breathing in and out. Now we're going to start loving kindness meditation. On the out breath, repeat this affirmation in the mind. May I be peaceful. May I be safe. discontentedness and the suffering it causes. May we be peaceful. free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. peaceful. May they be safe. 
may they be well. discontentedness in the suffering it causes. associates and co-workers be peaceful be safe. May they be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. Be peaceful. May they be safe.
may they be free of all discontentedness in the suffering it causes. May all beings whom I'll never meet be peaceful. May they be safe. May they be well. May they be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. May all beings, no matter where they reside, be peaceful. May they be safe. May they be well. be free of all discontentedness in the suffering it causes.
Now focus on the breath, cutting off and letting go any time the mind is off the breath. Breathing in and out.
वाते to slowly make your way out of meditation. We come together each Wednesday like this to support and encourage each other along the path. And while this is a independent practice that we all dedicate our own time to individually and on our own, it's really nice to come together and support and encourage each other like this uh, once a week on Wednesdays. And then we also do meditation on Saturdays as well, just before our Pali Canon in English study group. But our Sundays are really dedicated to learning the teachings and getting your questions answered. And we spend some time here as well. If you guys have any questions about your meditation practice or any of the teachings from the Buddha, I can open up to questions and see what you guys have related to how to maybe apply these teachings in your life, anything that's going on in your meditation practice, anything that you would like to discuss related to this chapter that we just covered or anything beyond that or before that. Uh, so if you'd like to ask a question, just put your comments into the comment section of YouTube, Facebook, or Zoom, and our moderators will see that. Or you can raise your hand electronically in Zoom, and we'll be able to ask your question that way. So, David, 
we just wrapped up our chapter on true love. And I was wondering if you can speak generally about the relationship between true love and also practicing loving kindness meditation. Yeah, so in order to get to true love, you have to have a genuine interest in seeing all beings be peaceful and be well. That you're only interested in seeing others be successful in their life. And you need to understand and know that another person's success comes through them making their own decisions. That them feeling content in the world, them feeling peaceful in the world, is going to only come through them making their own decisions. If we try to be forceful or controlling or we put our expectations on others, they're not going to be able to feel peaceful that way because they're going to feel controlled. And also, in order for someone to reach to enlightenment, they have to uh, extinguish all of their craving, desire, attachments. There's essentially two ways to extinguish craving, desire, attachment. One is to either actively train the mind with breathing mindfulness meditation, generosity, and actively looking at your attachments and actively eliminating them, like I've taught in other parts of this program. The other way to extinguish your craving, desire, attachment is to fulfill it. So if someone has a desire to travel to the Philippines or Singapore, or Malaysia, or some other place in the world, sometimes the only way to extinguish that is just to go do it and experience it. So if we really have this genuine interest for others to be well and be peaceful, then we would let them make their own decisions in life. And of course, there's children that we need to guide and we need to help and show them and contribute to their life and help them gain wisdom to make decisions in their life. And there's also situations like life partners or parents or others that we might contribute something to their life by sharing an idea or a thought or some wisdom. But we can't be attached to that. We can't have an expectation that the other person is going to adopt what it is that we share. So the best way that you can accomplish practicing true love is through generating and developing this genuine interest in seeing others be well and knowing that them being well is directly related to them being able to make their own decisions and just you letting go of any craving, desire, attachment and where you see that any of your expectations or your own craving, desires are seeping into the relationship is pull away from that. Even if you've said something that is an expectation, you can always resend it. You can always say, oh, I'm so sorry. Just ignore that. You know, just forget that I, I even said that. You need to be able to make your own decisions here. You can even ask people, you know, you can say, you know, I see you're getting ready to embark on this journey. Are you interested in any suggestions? And if they say no, okay, that's fine. And just be comfortable with that. Or if they say, sure, what do you have to share? When you share, instead of saying words like, you've got to do it this way, or the only way you're going to be successful is if you do it this way, or any of these kind of strong demanding type phrases, you need to soften your language a bit using those five factors of well-spoken speech. That third factor is speaking gently and speaking, the fourth one is speaking beneficially and the fifth one is speaking with a mind of loving kindness so you might say well i suggest for you or you might be interested to consider or have you thought about this because ultimately the decision is the other person's so even in sharing these teachings when 
students talk to me and ask me questions. I never tell them what to do. I never give them a decision. I share with them teachings, but then ultimately make sure they understand the decision is theirs because each of us experience the results and outcome of our decisions. That's our gamma, the cause and effect or action and result. And the only way for a, a being to be well and be peaceful is to get comfortable with making their own decisions, gaining wisdom and understanding how to make their own decisions. And then when they make those decisions, see the results from those decisions. So in situations, even where you feel somebody's headed for some potential failure, and even though you might have given your guidance, you sometimes have to just let go, let them fail. And in that failure, they will experience certain wisdom and gain certain insight. But if you tried to block them and control them because you know it's headed for a bad situation, then that's just your craving, desire, attachment, and they're going to be resentful towards you for blocking them from doing that. So you've got to practice really, really well all the other teachings of letting go. So practicing non-attachment, non-craving, non-desire, practice non-ill will or harmlessness, letting go and practice wisdom so that with this loving kindness meditation, as you're cultivating this active goodwill, this interest to see others be well and be peaceful without judgment, you practicing your practice really well of non-attachment and the five factors of well-spoken speech and all the other teachings the Buddha teaches, then you can function in the relationship as someone who's contributing to other people's lives rather than trying to control it. As we develop loving kindness and compassion, is there any danger that that level of compassion can turn into attachment? And are there any tips on avoiding that? Yeah, that's what can happen is the mind will swing back and forth is that if the mind's not in the middle on any particular topic, you can cultivate in the mind so much loving kindness or so much compassion where compassion is concerned for the misfortune of others that oftentimes that's where some of the controlling behavior and some of the expectations that someone puts on somebody in a relationship where they think they're being loving and kind and compassionate but in reality it's their mind craving and desiring and having this attachment this overabundance of loving kindness and compassion and it's moving into your own craving and desires because you're now trying to control the person because there's so much interest in seeing them be well and there's so much compassion and then when you start letting that go the mind can then swing to the other side where now you feel disinterested you feel completely detached you feel like gosh what am i supposed to do here just let this person you know walk into failure and you can swing to the other side and that's where you've got to find that sweet spot where you're able to offer suggestions you're able to offer contributions to people's lives but then not be attached to the outcome of how it unfolds and whether or not they actually are willing to accept your advice or not you know so you can have too much loving kindness and compassion and it, that's where it becomes a craving desire attachment and that's why i say that there's no such thing as a wholesome craving desire attachment even if you're craving desire attached to loving kindness or compassion it's going to lead to discontentedness in the mind even if you're having craving desire attachment for meditation and you're really want to do meditation so badly 
Well, when impermanence comes in and you're not able to do meditation for some reason, you're going to have discontentedness because the mind's craving it so bad. So you've got to find that middle and realize that that's the only place the mind's going to be perfectly peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. That enlightened mental state is every single topic. You've got to dial it into the middle. I suppose it points to the importance of our practice as a whole and that our meditation can further our practice in daily life. And then as we make wholesome decisions in daily life, this can assist us in our meditation and take our meditation to a better level, essentially. Right. These two things feed off of each other. You know, if somebody was only meditating, that's all they were doing. And then they went out in the world and they had wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action. You know, the mind's not going to really develop. Or if they just went out in the world trying to have polite speech or, you know, right intention, right speech, right action, and they weren't meditating, then they're only going to have so much success in doing that. Both of these go together that when you're meditating, it improves the condition of the mind to make it easier for you to practice all the other steps on the Eightfold Path in daily life. And by you practicing all the other steps in daily life on the Eightfold Path, it's going to make the quality of your meditations that much better. So you're essentially soaking these teachings into the mind on a gradual process, and they're just feeding off of each other, making it better and better and better. And this is where you can have really good moods for multiple days. I've seen some posts from some students that have recently mentioned like they've had some really good moods for multiple days in a row. And this is kind of the glimpse of the jhanas or the glimpse of enlightenment coming through where you start seeing the light flicker a little bit. And it's like, whoa, like that's what it feels like to be in the middle for three, five, ten days in a row. Wow, that feels quite nice. But then you can't get attached to that either, because as you're moving along, you're only going to get those glimpses for a certain number of days. And then some discontentedness is going to hit you again. So you you have to kind of widen that period of time that the mind experiences those good moods and that peacefulness and that calmness, not allowing it to ever be attached to any condition whatsoever that it's only ever observing discontentedness and wherever it sees those painful feelings, pleasant feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, you cut them off and let them go and bring the mind to the middle because you have to see it as dangerous to allow the mind to latch on and get any kind of painful feelings, pleasant feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant based on anything at all. So if you're sitting on the sofa and you're noticing boredom coming into the mind, you've got to have that awareness and take action right away. Don't be complacent. Really attend to it. Attend to the mind. Or if you're noticing that sadness is coming into the mind, take action right away to move the mind to the middle. Or if you're noticing happiness, excitement, or elation related to any particular thing, even you're by yourself and you're just thinking about meeting up with a friend or thinking about seeing your children after school or thinking about your partner coming home from a business trip and you feel some excitement starting to spring up, you got to cut it off right there before it goes further. And now that's going to be dangerous for the mind if you allow it to continue. So until you're willing to let go of this temporary conditioned happiness, 
you won't get to the permanent joy that is unconditioned, where the mind is just always joyful all the time. So you have to be willing to let go of that temporary pleasant feelings in order to get to that permanence where the mind is just always joyful. And as we experience those pleasant moods over the course of a few days or a week, is there some value in just accepting that that will eventually be the impermanence turn into discontent states and simply being able to accept that? Do you think that there's value in, even though we're working toward eliminating discontent states while we're experiencing them, just to simply accept them as a part of life? Yeah, just understand that you haven't done anything wrong. There's no shame. There's no guilt. None of that related to when discontentedness comes in. So if you get angry or you get frustrated or you feel boredom coming in, you're not trying to be perfect today. You're trying to build in this practice where over time the mind is gradually trained to get these longer and longer and longer periods of time where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So if you're going five days or 10 days where everything's completely peaceful and wonderful, don't get attached to that because there's going to be some discontentedness that comes back. You'll even go sometimes three months or six months where the mind is completely peaceful and then we'll wound. something will come in. It won't be very strong. You'll know exactly how to deal with it. It'll be gone in a matter of maybe hours or maybe a few minutes, but something will come in. And you don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to feel shameful. You didn't do anything wrong. It's just that the mind's still holding on to some residual craving, desire, attachments. And at that point where you've gone three to six months where you haven't experienced any discontentness, you did a lot of work to get to that. So once you experience a little bit of discontentedness, you'll know exactly why that is. It's some craving, desire, attachment. You'll be able to look internal, find out what that is start working on that and cutting it off and letting it go. And then boom, it's gone. And now you might go another six months or so or longer. And this is where you know the mind's getting closer and closer to liberation, but you can't get excited in that. You can't take pleasure in the fact that that's occurring because it's going to hinder your progress. And you can't get arrogant and you can't get prideful that this is occurring. And that all this work that you've done and accumulated and built up to the point where, my goodness, these teachings from the Buddha are leading exactly where he said they would. The mind has been peaceful for three months or six months. My goodness, this is the true path. You can't even get to the point where you feel arrogant or prideful or take pleasure in that because as soon as you do, that's when the mind's going to regress or potentially experience discontentedness. I call it, it's like standing naked in the middle of your street and it's raining and pouring down raining and you're just unaffected by the rain. So it's lightning, it's thunder, it's raining. You're standing in the middle of your street in your neighborhood naked and you're just unaffected by the rain. And then a few minutes later, the sunshine comes out. And then the sunshine comes out and dries you off and you feel so wonderful from the sunshine and you just remain unaffected by that too. And then a few days later, the rain comes down and then boom, you know, you can't be affected by that. You have to train the mind to not be affected by what's happening around you. So there's no need to feel guilty or shameful that it's raining. There's no need to feel guilty or shameful that the sun is out. Just instead, don't allow the mind to take pleasure in that 
or to experience painful feelings because of that. Just remain unaffected by it. And unaffected doesn't mean that you're lackluster or you're indifferent or you just don't care. It means that you just go about your day. I'm just going to remain peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy regardless of what's going on around me. Oh, it's sunny out. Okay, great. I'm going to keep being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Oh, it's raining out. Okay, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Being unaffected doesn't mean that you're numb. It doesn't mean you're emotionless. It just means that you don't allow your inner feelings to be created based on what's happening around you. It seems that it's oftentimes not so much the unpleasant feelings that lead to discontent as the craving for pleasant feelings while we're experiencing unpleasant feelings that leads to that discontent. It's not so much the rain as you pointed out as it is craving for it to be dry, essentially. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, so the problem, and, and if you read the Buddhist teachings, he always describes discontentedness as pleasant feelings. He describes that first. Then he describes painful feelings. Then he describes neither painful nor pleasant. I kind of switched the two because I think it's easier to understand this way. But the reason why I think he described it that way is because that's the cycle that the mind goes through. He describes it as, you know, the mind is essentially chasing and longing for pleasant feelings. That's the problem that is creating the discontentedness is it wants pleasant feelings. And if it gets what it, the objects of its desires, then it experiences that pleasant feelings, which is what it was going for. But that kind of falsely affirms for the mind that it was on the right track. And it falsely thinks that this was a valid pursuit that yes, I chased this and chased this and chased this and chased it. And I got it. And wow, I feel pleasant. I feel pleasant feelings. But then the mind doesn't realize a few hours, a few days later, those pleasant feelings wear off. And now you're experiencing painful feelings. It doesn't attribute that the chasing for those pleasant feelings is what actually caused the painful feelings. It doesn't connect the two. And once you study this and you look at it closely, then you see that the real problem is that the mind's chasing pleasant feelings. And by doing that, it's welcoming or inviting in the painful feelings. So it seems counterintuitive to someone who hasn't really had exposure to this path very much that you're cutting off happiness or you're cutting off excitement or you're cutting off exhilaration or elation or euphoria or thrill because that's kind of what the unenlightened mind lives for. But it's not until you cut that back and you see the mind come into the middle and the painful feelings are being tempered and the pleasant feelings are being tempered that then there's this joy that blossoms out of the mind that is completely unattached to anything whatsoever. And it just resides there all the time. But you don't see that until you've cut back enough of all of this other stuff before that joy blossoms in the mind it's like aha oh there's the middle wow that feels nice and when usually when you first experience that the first few times your mind might get attached to that that wow that was so joyful and, and then as soon as your mind starts craving it it's gone and it's like whoa what was that it was like the light came on for a split second and then it was gone so you've got to get to the point where you're not even craving that joy or that enlightenment and you can't 
get discontent that the mind is discontent. So once you're starting to experience some of these glimpses and then you go for three weeks or however long without any discontentedness, when some discontentedness comes into the mind, don't be discontent because you're discontent. Because if that three weeks you're like, oh, I think I'm enlightened because for the last three weeks I haven't experienced discontentedness. Well, as soon as some more discontentedness comes in, then you're going to be discontent that you're discontent. And you're just kind of building it up from there. So that's why I share with people, don't ever convince the mind that you're ever enlightened. Because you'll go these three months or six months or so without any discontentedness. And then here comes some discontentedness to remind you you're not yet enlightened. And if you convinced yourself over those three months or six months that you're enlightened, when that little bit of discontentedness comes in, you're maybe going to be even more discontent. So you've got to be like, instead of feeling guilty or shameful, just, oh, okay, well, there's still some craving, desire, attachment there. What is it? Let me root it out. Let me get the dust out of the corners and clean this out of the mind. I think about this like wringing out a rag. If you have a rag full of water, you want to wring it out and wring it out and wring it out and wring it out some more and just wherever you see craving, desire, attachment, wherever you see discontentedness as a red light on the dashboard, just root it out of the mind. And that's where having a teacher is helpful because you can get help and you can get suggestions. Whereas if the ego's there or if there's conceit or arrogance or pride and your teacher shares some suggestions with you and you're disrespectful or you push that off, you're not gonna see the same progress as if you're completely open and trusting of this relationship. And if a teacher says, yeah, I see some arrogance there, I see some ego, and you take a look at that and you try to understand that because your teacher is only interested in helping you. They should be, and they're not motivated by anything else other than to help you and support you. And sometimes you're gonna hear things from your teacher that you would maybe prefer not to hear if there's ego there. But a teacher should be unaffected and just be interested in helping their students. So occasionally a teacher has to share with a student, hey, I see some ego here. You know, this is something that, you know, you you should consider working on. And if the student is wringing out that rag and really looking at all the dust in the corners, then they should be thankful that someone's willing to share their time and effort to help them. Just like if you're in a situation around people that you don't normally spend time with and some discontentedness arises, rather than being angry at the person who you're around and maybe they're saying some hateful things, I always suggest people to flip that around and be thankful that you were around this person and you experienced this. They're like a little T. They're not the big T, not the big teacher, the teacher who you're going to for all the guidance, but they're kind of like a little T where they've kind of taught you something about your own mind that when you hear somebody saying something vindictive or racist or judgmental or anything like this, when you hear that, if that's bothering the mind, then you know there's still craving, desire, attachment there. And that person is kind of like shining a light on it for you. They don't know that they're doing it, but you know they're doing it. So rather than be angry at the person, just be thankful that you got that opportunity to see that part of your mind that still has some dust in the corners. Thank you, David. We have a question on YouTube from Tricia. She asked, hello, David. 
We talked about me not really enjoying meditation recently. I said to you that I used to love meditation. You responded that I may have had craving or attachment to meditation. If I enjoy something, does that always equal craving or attachment? Am I not able to enjoy things without it being a craving or attachment? You can enjoy things without it being a craving or attachment. Just because someone's enjoying something doesn't mean that there is a craving, desire, attachment. But if somebody, like in your case, you actually said you loved meditation. And when somebody's saying they love meditation or they love chocolate or they love going to the park, that tells me that they're not quite understanding what love is because we oftentimes use the word love in replace of craving, desire, attachment. So if someone says they love meditation, if they understand love, love is a genuine interest in seeing others be well and be peaceful. So you can't actually love meditation. You can enjoy meditation. You can like meditation. You can know that meditation is beneficial for you, but it's not possible to actually love meditation because it's not something that you can wish that is well and peaceful. So when you mention that you love meditation, right away my mind's thinking like, okay, let me help Tricia better understand what love is. And it looks like she's just replacing craving, desire, attachment with the word love. And then additionally, you had mentioned that you once had this affection, I'll use the word affection, for meditation. And then now recently, you don't have that same affection because it's kind of become a lot of work for you. This is how the mind swings back and forth. So if the mind's holding on to something really tightly with a craving, desire, attachment, it loves it or it's getting all these pleasant feelings from it. It's enjoying it. It's getting these pleasant feelings. Well, once it starts letting go of that attachment to meditation, it will oftentimes swing to the other side where now it becomes complacent or it's too much work and kind of a little bit disgruntled about it. And this is kind of common where the mind will swing like this until you eventually get to the middle and you'll still enjoy meditation, but your mind won't be craving it or longing for it. You just know that you do it every day as part of your practice and it's just always beneficial. It's always helping you. So you can enjoy things without craving desire attachment, but it was all the other things that you had shared that looked to me like there's craving desire attachment there for meditation because I saw from your words that the mind was swinging. And this is a common thing that happens when we start letting go of craving it'll swing to the other side. And then when you experience that and you see like, ah, I don't like this either. I don't like this feeling. Then it kind of swings a little bit more back to meditation and say, hey, I'm kind of liking this. And then it kind of swings back and swings back. And then eventually, boom, 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 it's right in the middle. And then you're just peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy. You know that meditation is something that you need to do. It's not something that you long for or that you consider that that's where you're going to get your pleasant feelings from and also meditation isn't like a big chore it's not so much work it's not like walking through the mud kind of thing but you have to experience that before you actually get to the middle where the mind finds that middle and it's just always in the groove and it no longer swings side to side very interesting that you pointed out that when we use the word love if we're not intending to say that we wish that 
object of our love well, then what we're really referring to is attachment. Typically, that's the case. So if you say, like, I love chocolate, well, you may enjoy chocolate, you may like chocolate, you may have an affection for chocolate, and you may not even have a, a craving for it, but you're just using that word love because it's in our vocabulary and it's the way that most people talk. So one of the parts of moving the mind to enlightenment is to understand language really, really well and understand how the language relates to the condition of the mind. Whereas if you continue to conversate and you continue to discuss things in the same way that you have, those words and those word choices that you've made are based on the unenlightened mind. And you're going to continue to experience the results of that because you haven't really refined or examined or investigated how you're truly using language and what that means in the mind. Once you start to understand how you're using language and you clean that up and you start using the language that's appropriate based on how your mind is now thinking in an unconditioned enlightened state, your word choices will most likely need to change. So you won't hear me say that I love chocolate or that I love meditation or anything like that because it's not possible for me to love a piece of chocolate because it's not something that I can wish to be well and be peaceful. So the more you understand what true love is, then you will most likely update your language and the way that you refer to things. And by you doing that, it will actually change the way that the mind thinks and the way that the mind interacts in the world. And the same thing like I was talking about on Sunday, you will most likely stop using the word want. I want a piece of chocolate or I want to meditate. This word want is essentially longing with a strong eagerness. It's craving, desire, attachment. So you won't hear me say like, I want to go to the store or I want you to do this or I want to have a class. I will say I'm interested or I would be pleased or it would be nice or is it possible? Using these other words will train the mind to now think of things in a different way than it did before. And when you start interacting with other people this way, you'll actually see that you'll be more successful in your relationships with your life partners, with your children, with your coworkers, friends, and family, that you no longer say like, I want you to come to my house. You can say, I would like to invite you to my house. And if it's possible for you to come, it'd be wonderful if you came. Or would you like me to bring some bread home in order for us to have dinner tonight instead of do you want me to bring bread home so you'll start seeing some of this language that needs to be cleaned up in our vocabulary and the more that you understand how these words create certain thought patterns in the mind you'll shift the way that you speak and that's going to be really beneficial to your practice that the way that you speak is related to the way that you think I thought I would point out a comment that Manal made. She said, that was a wonderful explanation, Teacher David, on someone else shining the light on some form of craving within you. And her comment in regards to what you were saying, it just seems to be a great reminder that with the help of a teacher, the whole world and all of these experiences that we are having are guiding us in some way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have always thought of it that way. So when I had a divorce with my first wife. I wasn't angry or vindictive with her. 
I actually really appreciated her because she showed me certain things about my own life and the way that I was doing things that helped me to improve. She didn't actively tell me these things, but she gave me a way to reflect on, you know, what I was doing in the relationship. And then girlfriends after that, that I had, I would always end a relationship with a significant other like that, thinking that I really appreciated the time that we had together and that while this relationship didn't work, it surely shined a light on something that I could improve. And in that way, I could leave the relationship appreciative and with gratitude rather than any kind of resentment or vindictiveness because this person was like a little tea to me. Or if you go outside and someone cuts you off in traffic and you get really angry from that, right away, you can be appreciative that this person did that because had that not have happened, you wouldn't know that you have that craving desire attachment that's in the mind and therefore you're going to live with it for however many more years and that's going to delay your enlightenment longer. So if you have a death in the family, if you have breakups and relationships, if your children are doing things and you lose your patience as a result of that, they're like a little tea. They're like a little teacher for you and they don't need to know it. You don't need to tell them, but by you reflecting and being open to all the experiences you're having around you and how that can benefit you, then you internally can do the work. And that's where if you need to reach out to your teacher and get some insight about what's happening and make sure you've learned everything you need to learn, that's beneficial. It's one thing to go through certain experiences and having discontentedness and not learning what you need to learn. And then that discontentedness just keeps repeating in a cycle over and over again. But it's another thing is if each one of these experiences you have with discontentedness, if you're like, okay, I'm not interested in having this discontentedness again. Let me make sure I learn everything I need to learn about this situation and what caused this discontentedness in my mind so that I never need to experience it again. In this way, you're not just tromping through life, experiencing discontentedness and not really caring, kind of throwing caution to the wind. Instead, you're slowing down and you're looking at each individual incident of discontentedness, not just painful feelings, but pleasant feelings too, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And when you look at all of those one by one as they're occurring in your life, getting help from your teacher if you need to, or from another member of our community, then instead of just tromping through life and kind of knocking down all the trees, you're selectively investigating gaining the wisdom from each experience so that you never have to experience that again. Because if you're going to experience discontentedness, you might as well learn as much as you can in each individual incident. And maybe you learn, you know, 50% of what you need to learn in any one situation. And maybe it does occur again, but it's to a lesser degree. And now you get to learn a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And this is how the mind gradually extinguishes discontentedness is through that learning process of always being open to wisdom and always going within and doing that hard work internally. Thank you, David. I'd like to turn it over to Basim now for our Zoom questions. Thanks, James. We have a question from Holly. She says, I find that when I am preparing a class to teach others, my mind is in the future, the time when I will be with the students, teaching them. Imagining being there is how I always prepare my classes. 
Is it still better to put forth efforts to stay in the present moment in a situation like this? How can I work to accomplish this? Yeah, there's no harm in thinking about like this and kind of planning and preparing for a class. And you're consciously sitting down, you're consciously thinking forward about what it is you're going to teach and how you're going to teach it. That's still being in the present moment because in that present moment, you're thinking about something you need to do in the future and you're planning that out and you're thinking in your mind, what's the best way to have this happen? The problem would come in is if you do all that envisioning and you do all that planning, then when you're actually in the moment, your mind is so attached to it being done that way that when it doesn't happen that way, then there's discontentedness. So that's the difference. So if you're going to sit down and plan and think about what you're going to teach in the future, that's wise. That's preparing. That's ensuring that you're prepared for this class. But then know that no matter how much you think it through and how much you plan for it, that it's probably not going to happen that way exactly because of impermanence. So then when you're actually teaching the class, you're in the present moment, you're teaching, you're drawing on the thoughts that you had in preparation for the class, but you're not attached to it going exactly the way that you had envisioned it. That's where the problem comes in, that if the mind's not in the present moment during the class, it will experience discontentedness. It'll be shaken up, and that's where the mind will unravel. Well, uh, thanks, teacher. Uh, no more questions for now. Okay, any more questions from you, James? That's all that we have for today, David. Okay. So on Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 16, which is dissolving the ego. Ego serves no purpose. This is a really important chapter to help eliminate any arrogance, pride, measuring or comparing, judging others and even judging ourselves. We're going to be talking about that universal truth of non-self, a lot of detail with that because that's part of the ego. And then we're going to be talking about that fetter of conceit because both of these together is what makes up the ego. So if you remember back in chapter four and other times where we've kind of referenced the universal truth of non-self, I said, okay, you know, I'm going to share a little bit of this, but then later in the program, we're going to get into it in a lot more detail when you guys are ready to study it in more detail. So all those little kind of uh, reviews or kind of overviews of the universal truth of non-self was just to kind of prep the mind a little bit about what that is. And then this Sunday is when we're going to dive into it in detail so that you deeply understand what the universal truth of non-self is, how to eradicate it, how to eliminate it, how to realize non-self. And then we're also going to be talking about conceit and talking about how to eliminate and eradicate that with actual practices. If you haven't yet downloaded the newest book, Volume 1, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, it's part of the Words of the Buddha book series. Be sure to download that. And that whole chapter 16 has been rewritten compared to the older book that I had written originally. And that's what we're going to be sharing in Sunday's class. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation. So thank you guys for joining. Thank you for your commitment to learning and practicing these teachings. Look forward to continuing to help you in diving into the ego on Sunday. So between now and then, have a lovely rest of your day, a lovely rest of your week, 
and we'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.